I uh, would like to welcome everyone to this uh, session on Marxism and the environment. Uh, my name is uh, Stefan. I'm uh, from the IMT in Sweden, and uh, I will be chairing today's uh, session. Uh, first, uh, we have some practical information to make sure that everything goes smoothly. And for those of you joining uh, just now, uh, you will note uh, that there are pauses all the time when people speak. And uh, this is because this session is translated into 12 languages, Spanish, French, Chinese, etc. And we have to pause uh, for the translation. To see the schedule for the school, please uh, go to the event page. And uh, on the left, you will see a button with a star. You can see the two other sessions simultaneous to this one, and you can see uh, the rest of the school there. Uh, you can find the translations uh, on the same page uh, if you click uh, on the button with a speech symbol. Uh, so if you're not already in there, navigate to the correct language and join the Discord server. Yeah, the user manual for Discord is also in the email inviting you to the school. Now, uh, this uh, discussion on the, the environment is uh, a key question for obvious reasons, one which uh, concerns not only the future of uh, the planet, but potentially of uh, human civilization and the human species itself. So I'm proud to present our speaker, Jack Halinski Fitzpatrick, who works for Well-Read Books, uh, the publishing house of uh, the International Marxist uh, Tendency, which uh, publishes a wealth of Marxist uh, literature. Uh, Jack will speak for about uh, 90 minutes, including translation, and there will be a 25-minute break after his leadoff. Uh, and after that, we will have a number of comrades who will uh, contribute to the discussion before Jack sums up. So uh, without further ado, I uh, will would like to uh, ask uh, Jack to come in. Welcome, Jack. The question of climate change is no longer a thing of the future. Freak weather events are becoming more common. Forests are burning and people are dying from heat waves, droughts, floods and famine. Two years ago, a report was released by the IPCC that modelled the effects of climate change. They concluded that unless global temperature rises were limited to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels, a tipping point could be reached. It points to a future where humanity would be driven to mass displacement, war over natural resources and barbarism. But to keep temperature rises to below this level would require a 45% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. And what has been the response? Well, according to the UN, governments are planning to produce 120% more fossil fuels than would be consistent with meeting this target. But this prospect has not been completely unanswered. Last year saw millions of young people begin to fight back. In September 2019 alone, six million people took part in the Fridays for Future climate strikes. And these were not just caused by worries about the climate. They are a product of the instability of the system and the radicalization that this is provoking. We can see that there is a large layer of radical young people who are not interested in waiting about for change. Whilst the climate strikes were huge and inspiring, they were unfortunately limited. Firstly, they were not linked up to the labour movement on a systematic basis. But secondly, the labour movement itself really showed no way forward. On top of all of this, they were, to a large extent, derailed by liberal NGOs, green parties, 
and groups like Extinction Rebellion. In a certain sense, Extinction Rebellion also reflects the growing radicalization amongst many layers of society. They recognize that letters, emailing, and marches don't work, but the alternative that they present is just as impotent. The founder goes on to suggest that instead, the movement needs about 400 people to go to prison and about two to 3,000 to be arrested. So as if by ma magic, once you hit this level, the government just decides to carry out a green transition. They also argue that all classes can be convinced, and so they actively try to depoliticize the movement. One of their main demands is that governments should tell the truth. The trouble is, we live in a world where if the two richest men piled all of their wealth in $100 bills, they would be sat in space. The vast majority, however, would be sat on the floor. For a government that defends this system to tell the truth would therefore be suicide, and it is naive to think that this would be possible. Rather than basing themselves on the only progressive class in society, the working class, they focus instead on stunts. But these stunts at best play a reactionary role by reducing the confidence that workers have in themselves. It could lead to the, to the conclusion that rather than getting actively involved in the fight to change society, it can just be left to a small group. At worst, these actions can play an even more reactionary role by turning workers away from the environmental movement. Others, such as labour left activists in the UK, have campaigned for banks and other corporations to divest from fossil fuels. Now, first of all, it's quite unlikely that these companies will come under sufficient pressure from these left wing activists to divest. But even if they did, each time they were able to convince one corporation to divest, the vacuum would just be filled by another. The problem goes deeper than this, though. In one article, The Economist explained that the more renewable energy is deployed, the more it lowers the price of power from any source. Sources of power are a commodity under capitalism. So once there is investment in renewable energy, you have a, uh, a, a new source of very cheap and abundant power. And so as supply increases, the price of all sources of power goes down. You saw this between 2012 and 2016 in the United States. The installation of solar panels increased hugely uh, and costs equally fell uh, by a huge amount. Uh, and one solar panel capitalist described this as a circle of death. He said, with global overcapacity forcing down prices, Firms are compelled to produce more to gain the benefits of scale, which further lowers prices. Capitalism is an anarchic system where each capitalist competes against all others to produce a profit. When demand exceeds supply for a particular commodity, capital is directed to that sector. This means that more and more of that particular commodity is produced until supply exceeds demand. But it is impossible for individual capitalists to realize that this point has been reached until it's too late. The realization only comes when the particular commodity produced can no longer be sold for a profit. Since the working class is paid less in wages than the value it creates in the labor process, this causes periodical crises of what is called overproduction. Too many commodities are produced to be profitably absorbed by the market. And this is, of course, much the same with sources of energy. And the point as well to make is that this problem would only be exacerbated if governments were to introduce subsidies for green energy. 
It would only lead to markets becoming even more glutted and so drive the sector into an even deeper crisis. So if we are to avoid catastrophic climate change by keeping global warming to below that 1.5 degrees Celsius level, we require an energy transition far quicker and more radical than anything we have ever seen. So these periodic crises that capitalism goes into act as a barrier to this quick transition. Now, one idea that is gaining followers is the idea of degrowth or zero growth. The idea is that the faster we produce and consume, the more we damage the environment. So they call on the advanced economies to embrace zero or even negative GDP growth. But environmental damage is not caused by industrialization or growth as such. But by the way, it's uh, but by the way, production is organized and controlled. And we can see that already because the introduction of renewable energy has meant that energy emissions no longer rise in lockstep with economic growth. And so the point to me that to be made is that if we had a democratically planned economy which properly utilized renewables and rationally allocated energy and resources, we could bring about an absolute uncoupling. So economic growth has no impact on emissions. Now, linked also to these ideas is the idea of overpopulation. I speak to you here from uh, Britain. Various members of the British royal family, for example, have said that the biggest problem facing the environment today is overpopulation. Unfortunately, that uh, does not mean that they limit their own population. But anyway, the first thing I would say to recognize is that large families have a material base. In developing countries, rural families have to rely on having many uh, children because in the absence of a welfare state, then parents need to rely on their children to support them when they get older. And as evidence of this, we've seen declining fertility rates across the world as countries urbanize and develop. So if you had an economy where everyone's needs were met, then that would be one way uh, of limiting population if that really was your aim. But of course, the British royal family are not in favour of this. But the main thing to say against this argument is that we are very far away from having reached a limit in terms of how many humans the Earth can support. The ideas that are put forward here are really just a reheated version of the ideas of Thomas Malthus. He was an early 19th century economist who asserted that famine, poverty and disease were all products of overpopulation. But his ideas were disproved because with advances in agricultural technique, a bigger population could be supported. The bigger surplus that was produced enabled a bigger population to be supported with, uh, with high nutritional levels. And his ideas are still wrong today. We produce enough now to feed 10 billion people on the planet. And the technology already exists to make the complete transition to renewable power. So more people does not necessarily have to mean more emissions. Again, using the same sort of logic, there are those who argue that if we all just consume a little less, then we'll be able to save the planet. The Global Footprint Network, for example, marks Earth Overshoot Day. This is the day, according to them, when humanity has used up nature's resource budget for the year. So to deal with this, we have uh, people who suggest that we stop eating meat, we have people who uh, launch campaigns against so-called fast fashion. 
But the first question to ask these people is just who is it that they are suggesting consumes too much? In 2016, the UN estimated that 815 people were suffering from chronic undernourishment, and this will only be exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic.、Uh, regarding fast fashion, also,、uh, the National Education Union in the United Kingdom surveyed teachers on child poverty. They reported children wearing clothing that was ill-fitting, others with holes in their shoes. Um, <clears throat> and others attending school in the winter who had no coats. This is in advanced, the advanced United Kingdom. After a period where workers have suffered brutal austerity, to talk about consumerism really to most people is a sick joke. But even after considering this, where does this consumerism come from? Capitalism requires capital to be constantly flowing round the system. It needs us to spend, 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 and to manage this, huge amounts of resources are directed towards the advertising industry. This is an entire industry that's aimed to make humans feel worthless, so that they feel that they have to consume. And on top of this, even if you were convinced by all of these campaigns, increasingly products are designed with an artificially limited life. Many people watching may have experienced this when they buy a mobile phone or a laptop. Maybe it seems like clockwork. As soon as the warranty expires, it breaks. But this is incredibly useful for a capitalist. If you're a capitalist and you sell someone a phone that's perfect and works forever, how would you sell them that person another phone? So under capitalism, there is a disincentive to produce high-quality products within reason, of course. What all of these Theories do is、uh, place blame for the capitalist、uh, for the climate crisis on working class people themselves. But the real culprit is not the actions of workers; it's capitalism and the capitalists themselves. Just to give some figures, less than ten percent of waste that is sent to landfills is from households. Over seventy percent of greenhouse gas emissions are produced by one hundred big companies. And just twenty companies have produced、uh, one third of all CO two produced since 1965. So rather than blame those who are actually responsible, we are encouraged to blame ourselves or others. This acts also, therefore, to greenwash austerity because cuts to living standards are justified in order to save the planet. But even if, even if it was possible to convince every individual to stop consuming, would this even work? Well, in response to the coronavirus pandemic, many countries introduced stringent lockdowns. Flights were grounded, shops were shut. People did, to a large extent, stop consuming. And what impact did this have? Well, the International Energy Agency. Expects global greenhouse gas emissions to be eight percent lower in 2020 than in 2019. <clears throat> so even if people endure these huge changes to way, to the way they live their lives, we would still have 90 percent of the necessary decarbonisation still left to do. And what also has this shutdown brought with it? It has brought possibly the deepest capitalist crisis in history, which brings. Massive unemployment and eventually brutal austerity. So that just shows capitalism requires us to consume, and if we stop, the system goes into crisis. And this only brings unemployment and suffering for the working class. 
Now, instead of these individualistic solutions, there are some who propose things like carbon taxes. Ian Parry, an economist at the World Bank, for example, argues for a carbon tax of about $35 per tonne. Apologies, I've lost the Spanish translation. Okay, could I just check with the translation team that I'm back? Jack, I uh, think uh, that there was, uh, Dave, you lost them and uh, you will need to restart the Discord or possibly take someone else's Discord while you... Apologies for this, it's never going to go entirely smoothly. Okay, I think I'm back. Just one more check. Okay, good. Panic over. Okay, um, so Ian Parry, um, an economist at the World Bank, his his plan, though, um, would raise the price of petrol by about 10% and the price of electricity by about 25%. And this he puts forward as the best way to make sure that countries meet their emissions pledges. However, in the UK in 2016, 10% of the population were in what's called fuel poverty. And what has that meant? Well, in the winter of 2017 in the UK, there were 46,000 excess deaths amongst elderly people, as many can't afford to heat their homes properly. So a carbon tax would hit the poorest hardest and push more people into fuel poverty. We are opposed to making the working class pay for the climate crisis. So we should support the Yellow Vests movement, which was itself sparked by a proposal to introduce a fuel tax, or the uprising in Ecuador, which was itself sparked by a plan to reduce fuel subsidies. Now elsewhere, there are those who argue for what is called a Green New Deal. This is inspired by the kind of Keynesian policies that were introduced in the US um, before the post-war upswing. The idea is government-led investment in green technologies and funding this through taxation. The aim would be to stimulate demand and boost consumption. Now, the Green New Deal is certainly a step forward compared to many of these individualistic solutions. Climate change is at least here presented as a political question. But the question that must be asked is where will the money come from? Because governments don't have money of their own. They can only get it through borrowing, through taxation or printing money. And when it comes to taxation, the government can choose to tax the workers or can tax the capitalists. But taxing workers merely cuts their consuming power and so reduces demand in the economy, which is, of course, the opposite of what the stimulus is intended to do. Taxes on the capitalists, on the other hand, mean biting into the profits of the capitalists. And this can create a a strike of capital, capitalists refusing to invest. So taxation can only stimulate demand by suppressing it elsewhere. Uh, Borrowing as well brings its own uh, problems. Governments already around the world were in a huge amount of debt, and this has only been exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic, the response to it. Now, some like Ocasio-Cortez in the United States, contends that the Green New Deal will pay for itself through growth. But is this possible? Well, if you look at uh, US government debt as a percentage of GDP, in 1946, this stood at 119%. And following this, the post-war upswing did allow uh, the United States to reduce this level to 31% in 1974. But we are living in a completely different period today. 
And the thing to recognise was that the post-war upswing was not caused by the policies of the New Deal. After all, it was not until after 1945 that the world uh, world economy began growing again. And this occurred mainly because of the destruction of World War II, which created demand to build the economy back up again. Today, on the other hand, world markets are saturated. Just to give some figures again, capacity utilisation in both the United States and Euro area stands at under 70% today. And whilst in China, it is around 74%. What this means is that most countries are not utilising the productive capacity that they already have. Why is that? It's because there is not enough demand in the economy due to the crisis. So it's not a question of a lack of money to invest, but it is due to the organic crisis of capitalism. And so this can't be solved simply by pumping more money into the economy. This would only exacerbate the problem of overproduction. Now, ultimately, capitalism is incapable of bringing about the changes that are needed quickly enough. Almost all of the IPCC's models require uh, require negative emissions. So they need us to uh, suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. Now, this could be done through low-tech means, such as reforestation. But there are also some uh, more high-tech potential solutions, such as enhanced weathering. Now, I won't go into this uh, in too much detail, because this is uh, quite a speculative technology at the moment and would require an enormous amount of investment to enter the running as a plausible alternative. But the point I would like to make is that this investment is not being carried out by capitalists. Why? Because it's not possible to make money out of it. The only reason for capitalists to invest in anything is to make a profit. But you don't have to take my word from it. I've got a quote from The Economist here. They say, though renewable energy could profitably generate a fair share of the world's electricity, Nobody knows how to get rich simply by removing greenhouse gases. So there you have it. Because no one knows how to make it profitable to suck greenhouse gases out of the environment, it is not done. Now, this uh, drive to produce uh, in order to produce a profit also encourages companies to cut corners and drive down standards. Just one example of this is the Volkswagen emission scandal. Here, they installed a defeat device which could basically, uh, it could recognise when the car was being tested. They could then change the performance accordingly in order to improve their results. So it allowed the company to appear as though they were meeting regulations, but they were able to do that whilst avoiding reducing the performance of the car. Now, it is of course true that this is only one scandal, But the point to recognise is that capitalism is a system that rewards those who cheat, provided they uh, get away with it. Now, side by side with this barrier of profit is that of the nation state. Um, It's a very uncontroversial statement to say that international cooperation is needed in order to bring about the sort of change that we need. This would be both to mitigate against the impacts of climate change that we are already seeing, but it would also uh, it's also needed in order to help countries to switch to more green energy sources. Um, just to give one example, in Bangladesh, uh, it's a country where millions of people are at risk from flooding. Uh, there's a situation where Himalayan meltwater and heavy monsoons can inundate the Ganges Delta. 
But you see a similar problem in the Netherlands, which also sits on uh, on the delta of a river. <clears throat> but the difference is that in the Netherlands, there is a system of dikes and canals, which, mean that wa- which means that water can be directed to the sea. Uh, in addition to this, you have urban planning, which basically uh, enables uh, that quite basic requirement of homes to be placed outside of floodplains. Essentially, what we see here is that because the Netherlands is a much richer country than Bangladesh, it is possible to deal with this problem. Uh, and in, in, a, in order to deal with, the, with these sorts of disparities, um, the capitalists and their representatives have come up with a solution. Uh, in the Paris Agreement, they nobly resolved to transfer $100 billion a year from the advanced to the developing countries. Uh, and there is a net transfer of wealth that takes place. Each year, $2 trillion flows from the less advanced to the more advanced countries in the form of loans, repatriation of profits, and things like this. So that's $2 trillion in the opposite direction than what was intended, or not intended, what was agreed to apparently at this uh, and on, in the Paris Agreement. <clears throat> and this is no accident. Because capitalism divides the world into competing nation states, each of which puts the interests of their own ruling class first. Uh, Of course, some international cooperation is possible. When the capitalist system is in a healthy state um, and the economic pie is growing, nation states are capable of making agreements. We have seen the creation of the European Union, for example. But as soon as we enter a period of crisis, each government attempts to export its problems to all the other governments. And what is it that we see today? We see increasing protectionism. We see the breaking apart of international institutions. And we see generalized geopolitical instability. So the material base that the material base for the long for the sort of long lasting international cooperation that is needed in order to deal with the climate crisis just does not exist. We can take solar power as an example. We could um, provide a huge amount of green, clean energy today. If we covered the uninhabitable regions of the Sahara Desert with uh, solar panels, you would then be able to redirect that energy around the globe on the basis of need. Uh, this, this isn't my idea. It was a project that was begun by the German capitalists in the early 2000s uh, in order to move away from a reliance on <clears throat> on uh, on Russian gas. They established this project, which was called Desert Tech. The problem was that the energy that was produced by these solar panels would have to be directed through the Spanish state. And in the context of the austerity at that time, there was no question of upgrading the infrastructure to enable this to happen. The Spanish state also had its own ruling class to look after, of course, which included its own domestic fossil fuel industry. So they had no interest in investing in this project. Now, Greta Thunberg once said, if solutions within the system are so impossible to find, maybe we should change the system itself. I would say that the capitalist system has proved incapable of the radical and rapid action that is needed to save the planet. And if it's incapable of fulfilling this quite basic requirement, then surely it is time that it was gotten rid of. Um, Now, this IPCC report estimated that each year until 2030, 
around $150 billion needs to be invested in renewable and non-fossil fuel sources of energy. On top of this, to reduce overall energy demands, $340 billion is needed to be invested in buildings, transport and industry. But the money to pay for this is there. Every year, $1.7 trillion is spent on military expenditure and the weapons trade. Meanwhile, lying uninvested in the banks of big business is $2 trillion in the US, 2 trillion euros in Europe and 700 billion pounds in the UK. Um, as I explained earlier, this money is not invested because there is a lack of profit profitable outlets uh, for this investment. To deal with the climate crisis, we need a worldwide plan. This would involve the rapid move from fossil fuels to renewable energy. We also need to properly rationalise and plan our farming. And we need to mitigate the impacts of climate change that are already upon us. However, as the old saying goes, you can't plan what you don't control and you don't control what you don't own. It's the concentration and accumulation of capital that capitalism brings that's brought about this situation that I explained earlier, where the bulk of all emissions comes from a handful of large companies. But this makes things a lot easier for us. It means we just need to nationalise these large corporations and put them under the democratic control of the workers themselves. The workers who work in these industries know far better than the bosses how to run them. Just to give one example, in 1976, the Lucas Aerospace Corporation announced that they were going to cut thousands of jobs um, because of uh, technological change and uh, international competition. Uh, but the workers instead drew up a proposal. They demonstrated that the same factories, machines and employees could be retooled and redeployed. They showed that instead of producing missiles, which the company was producing uh, previously, they could produce renewable technology and advanced healthcare equipment. The workers were eventually sold out by the trade union and labour leaders. But this demonstrates the creative power of the working class. You imagine also if we had a democratically planned economy. Rather than combining some of the best minds in the world to think about how to make a new button for a mobile phone, you could instead direct scientists, engineers and others to socially useful areas. Or rather than blaming workers for uh, consuming too much, we were able instead to provide free, high quality public transport and free home insulation. Now, of course, a socialist society wouldn't automatically be green, but a democratically planned socialist economy gives us the tools to ensure that it is. Because with the active participation in the running of society by the working class, it allows society to be run in the interests of need and not profit. Now, the thing, of course, to remember is that no ruling class in history has ever given up its power and privileges without a fight. But history has also shown that there is a power that is far stronger than any ruling class. And that is the working class when they were organised around a socialist programme. As the saying goes, not a wheel turns, not a light bulb shines without the kind permission of the working class. Because the working class hold power in their hands. And if they are mobilised, they are capable of shutting down society. So... Whilst it was incredibly inspiring to see the movement of the students on the streets, these protests are not enough 
if they remain limited in this way. Now, students can and have acted as a uh, as a spark to the workers' movement in the past. You can just see uh, May 1968 as an example of that. The point is, though, that students on their own are not capable of changing society. And it's only the working class that has the power to do this. On top of this as well, it's only the working class that has the inclination to change society. The capitalists won't save this planet. They're already living on another one. Uh, and some of them, such as Jeff Bezos, are already researching how to colonize other planets for them to destroy. History has shown that when working people do move into action, there is no lack of self-sacrifice and fighting spirit. What has consistently been lacking instead is a leadership worthy of the name. And it's the building of this leadership that should be the focus of today. So, Yes, to stop climate change, we do need system change. But system change will only take place if the working class are organised and led to fundamentally transform society. We need a fundamental transformation to a democratically planned socialist society. That is the only way that we can solve the climate crisis. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much uh, for that uh Excellent introduction to this topic, Jack. Uh, I think we can uh, all agree that was uh, great, but uh, we can't applaud you online. We will soon have a 25-minute break, just some brief information. Uh, apologies for the brief problems with the translations in the session. The technology is not perfect, but it nevertheless allows us to meet in this limited way. And uh, to overcome this limitation, comrades have uh, posted an inspiring amount of photos of their participation in social media, uh, which allows us to get a glimpse of the wide international participation of uh, revolutionaries in this event. So uh, just a reminder, please keep the posts uh, coming, comrades. Uh, remember to use the hashtags uh, Marxist University, IMU, IMU 2023 hashtags. Uh, we have uh, also noted that the hashtag Marxist is uh, trending in several countries right now. So you might want to add that too. First uh, speaker after the break will be Jonas Foldager from IMT in Denmark. The break is uh, 25 minutes to 5 uh, until 8.30 UK time. Oh, sorry, that is, should be 7.30 uh, UK time. See you all there. So I uh, wish to welcome all the comrades uh, back from uh, the break. And uh, we have a number of comrades who will uh, intervene in this uh, very important discussion this evening. Uh, so first uh, on the list is uh, Jonas Foldiger from uh, IMT in uh, Denmark. And he will be followed by Adam from Britain. Uh, welcome, Jonas. Thank you. And hi, comrades, and uh, greetings from Denmark. And thank you for an excellent lead-off. I want to talk a bit about the political side of the question and how the ruling class reacted to the climate movement that we saw previously. Now, the climate movement was uh, very impressive. Millions of very young people spontaneously taken to the streets, also in Denmark, demanding system change, not climate change, which uh, essentially is a revolutionary slogan. And I think it, it represents the, the revolutionary energy which has been building up into the, in, in the youth. The pressure from this mass mobilization, it was so big that the ruling class 
uh, and its government around the world, and uh, especially in Europe and in, in Denmark, it, they felt the earth shake under their feet because the youth exposed them. For years and years, it had been all talk and no action. And this was what, and this was what the youth wanted. So how, sh- how should the ruling class react to these school strikes and mass mobilizations? If they tried to repress them and drive them into the classroom by, by use of the police patterns, they would risk uh, escalating the situation and bringing the working class into the equation, as happened in France 68 with the repression of the, the students. So no, this was too dangerous. So instead, they went another way. If you can't beat them, join them. They simply adopted the movement. All of a sudden, everybody was now in favor of a green transition. All politicians, the banks, uh, the industry, all of the establishment. So uh, many governments uh, passed lofty long-term targets and statement uh, statement of intent. And this all also happened in Denmark, where all the political parties passed a climate law. In here, they set the target of being CO2 uh, neutral by 2050 and to make a 70% reduction in emissions in 2030 compared to the 1990 uh, level. Even uh, the employers' organization, the Danish Federation of Industry, made a green program. Five minutes. Tax cuts to the rich in the name of the environment. Cuts to student grants to finance the green transition. We should drill for oil in the um, Arctic Danish colony of Greenland in the name of the climate. So as you see, everybody was very green now and everybody supported this climate law. This tactical shift of the ruling class, it was celebrated as a victory by the so-called left and the NGOs celebrated. They had got their piece of paper, the climate law, so they demobilized. The movement died down, betrayed by its, its uh, NGO leadership, basically. But in the real world, everything stayed the same. As some in the in the climate movement uh, saw this as a, what it is, a hoax. So they demand action, but still within the confines of the capitalist system, resulting in the demand for uh, carbon taxes. But this leads to other problems. Without having a working class perspective front and center at all times, these green policies very quickly uh, turn reactionary. Taxing the consumption of uh, meat, or fuel, and so on, is, as, as Jack explained, uh, de facto making the working class pay. And such demands lower the consciousness of the working class. And I think especially in the current situation of a deep crisis, the state should keep its hands out of the workers' pockets. I don't think, to be honest, that the Yellow West movement will be the last example of a supposedly green policy sparking mass mobilization of the working class. When the governments in the near future need to introduce austerity to finance their massive stimulus, I think we can expect that many times, or at least a few, this will happen in the name of the climate. And minutes. So our job as Marxists is to explain that the exploitation of our collective environment and the working class are two sides of the same coin, the profit motive. And we have to explain to the climate activists that the reformists and the establishment are deceiving you. Don't look to them for change. The working class is the only force that has the power to change society radically, to remove the profit motive through a revolution. But as with so many things in life, one thing is to say it, another thing is to do it. To link the climate struggle with the working class, I think that the demands have to be closely linked to the social question. For instance, give work to all the unemployed, expropriate the closed factories, open them and make them part of a radical green transition. Expropriate the big capitalist and banks. 13 minutes. 
those who are the culprits of the climate change, as Jack explained, those who have profited on the exploitation of the working class and our collective environment, and use these companies to make a real green transition with good wages and good working conditions under worker, workers' control. A political consumerism might seem as an as a easy way out and a way that I at least can do something, but it's, uh, it is a luxury few on this earth can afford. But not only is it not uh, sufficient, it also has re uh, reactionary implications because it pushes the workers and poor away from the climate struggle and into the arms of big, 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 uh, big business, sorry, into the arms of the forces who want to preserve the status quo, the exact opposite of what we need. So if we are serious about uh, wanting to avoid catastrophic climate change, we have to take the fight to the real enemy, the, the capitalist class. Sum up, please. And give a working class content to the slogan, system change, not climate change. Thank you. Thank you, Jonas, for uh, that intervention. Uh, next on the list, we have Adam Booth uh, from IMT in Britain. And uh, as uh, all other speakers, he will have uh, 15 minutes, including translation. He will be followed by uh, Alessio Marconi from IMT in Italy. Uh, Adam Booth, welcome. Well, as, uh, as Jack said in his lead off, Individual solutions to the climate crisis are no solution at all. The pandemic has really shown the limits of the idea of degrowth under capitalism. We have to be very clear, degrowth under capitalism is called a recession, and it's the working class who will be asked to pay or forced to pay in the form of job cuts, unemployment, poverty. And as Jack said in his lead-off, even with all of the closures, all of the shutdown or the lockdown, We saw only uh, a predicted 8% fall in carbon emissions this year. And we'd need this every single year if we're going to reach the targets necessary to, to curb climate change. So this really highlights the limits of individualistic action, of boycotts, of consumer choices as a, as a so-called solution to climate change. And I think ordinary people can see the limits as, of these ideas as well. They can see the hypocrisy, the stinking hypocrisy of the bourgeois who push this line while they're going about their life with mansions and yachts, and luxury goods. And it's very telling that the key demand on the youth climate strikes has been for system change, not for individualistic change. So I think it's very positive that you've seen a movement that's looking for wider economic solutions to this crisis. And this is where the demand for a Green New Deal comes in. But I think we have to also, as Marxists, be very cautious and skeptical of this demand, because the idea of a Green New Deal, it's like an empty bottle and different people will fill it with different contents, different class contents. It's very similar, actually, to the demand to defund the police that you see come out of the Black Lives Matter movement. For radical youth and labor activists, a demand like defund the police really means abolish the police. But the liberals will take this demand and use it to try and diffuse and dis uh, divert the movement. And it's the same for the Green New Deal. Radical youth see it as a, a demand that, that, that talks about some sort of economic planning in society. The idea of having some sort of control over industry and infrastructure. But the liberals also adopt this slogan and they turn it into a harmless Keynesian demand. Just a bit more investment here into renewable energy or into insulation. And it's similar, actually, in this respect to the original New Deal in the 1930s. Keynes and, uh, and also Franklin Roosevelt, neither of these people were socialists. They were liberal bourgeois who wanted to save the system, not transform it. And it's the same now. The Green New Deal is not about 
overthrowing the system, change system change. It's about saving the system when it comes from the mouth of the liberals. Now, the original New Deal didn't work in the 1930s, and a Green New Deal won't work now for the same reasons. And that's that you can't manage capitalism. You can't make it kinder and greener. Capitalism is an inherently anarchic system driven by private ownership and production for profit. Under capitalism, it's not the government that dictates to big business in the market, but the other way around. What we need is is not this uh, kind of vague idea of a Green New Deal, but we need socialist planning. And as Jack said, in order to have a, a plan, you need to have control. And in order to have control, you need ownership. Now, today, it's the left reformists who've really bought into Keynesianism and into the Green New Deal as a, as a key demand. The reformists think you can manage capitalism, that you can patch it up. They think that the crisis, both the economic crisis and the environmental crises, are just ideological. They think it's all a political choice and that you can persuade the capitalists to invest rather than to cut and to be green rather than to pollute. They don't understand that the system is driven by material class interests, not by subjective individual will. The left reformists will talk thing about things like public ownership and a climate transition and green unionized jobs. But in reality, they see all of this as being possible without system change, without getting rid of the profit motive and uh, private ownership of the key levers of the economy and without abolishing the laws and dynamics of the capitalist system. And we see this most clearly with the question of who pays, who will pay for a Green New Deal. They say just tax the rich or borrow and spend. If it was so easy as that, why hasn't anyone done that in the last 10 years or even the last 50 or 100 years? Clearly, the perspective ahead of us is not one for a boom where these kind of reforms will be offered by the capitalist class. We're entering the deepest crisis in the history of capitalism. It's going to be cuts and austerity, not investment that are on the order of the day. And in this period, the capitalists will be looking to put the full burden onto the shoulders of the working class. And this includes the costs of the climate crisis. So the only solution is for a democratically and rationally planned economy along socialist lines. Not a Green New Deal, but a socialist planned economy internationally and under workers control. This isn't going to come from pleading with the capitalists, but from organizing and mobilizing the working class. It means linking the labor movement with the climate movement and arming ourselves with revolutionary ideas. We must be completely clear. It's capitalism that's killing the planet and we need revolutionary change, not climate change. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, intervention, Adam. Uh, the next uh, speaker will be Alessio Marconi for, from IMT in Italy. He will be followed by Florian Keller from IMT in Austria. Uh, welcome, Alessio. Hi, Stefan. Well, I think we, we all agree that the movement against uh, climate change has been a wonderful mass awakening of the youth. And at the mass level, it expressed the request for a radical change in the entire system, a potentially revolutionary request. And this shows that youth instinctively understood the nature of the problem. It was the leadership of the movement, and uh, especially of Fridays for Future, at least here in Italy, uh, who didn't. There was this argument that politics was uh, divisive, so no position could be taken. And this was explicitly stated 
in the international uh, declaration at the end of the um, assembly in uh, Lausanne, and I quote, our requests are based on reliable data and scientific evidence. That is true. It is not our responsibility to propose solutions. But of course, in this way, without taking a position, the only positions remained those of the liberals and the greens. So their theory was that their role was to put pressure on institution and to support those who supported ecological uh, measures of any kind. But this completely ignores the nature of capitalist uh, system, which as Adam was explaining, is not driven by the debate of ideas or uh, even less public welfare, but just by the, the research for private profit. This is a system where millions of people are starving to death and where in the last month, April and May, we saw millions of cattle, pigs, chicken killed and burned because they had no market especially in the U.S., but not only in the U.S. In such a system, the whole debate on ecological measures un under capitalism is a debate on the use of public resources to make a specific production profitable for a short period of time without any serious plan. We see, for example, big energy companies that instead of converting energy sources into renewables, five minutes, propose to store carbon dioxide underground, a process that solves nothing and is dangerous as well. And but the process uh, uh, to to make uh, profit twice: the first time when you sale the fossil energy, and the second one taking public resources for storage. Many of these uh, uh, companies created uh, special branches with a green name to ask for uh, green financing by the public. This is really a, a revolting hypocrisy on this uh, green economy. And yes, everybody was talking about uh, renewable energy, but today coal, oil and gas cover 90% of the primary supply of energy. And the prediction was that uh, they uh, will still have uh, 80% of the share in 2040. But now with this economic crisis, uh, the situation has further worsened. Because in addition of uh, what Jack was saying in his lead-off, now oil price has collapsed. And this uh, uh, put out of business uh, many renewable energies. And this is not only due to the, to the lockdown, uh, because there were signs of overproduction in the energy sector already in mid-2019. And more generally, in, in, in this situation of overproduction, in, in, in the middle of a war to conquer markets, uh, environment is the is the least of capitalist concerns, and, and the U.S. exit from the Paris uh, Climate Agreement last November is just one example. Mm, uh, Saudi Arabia postponed uh, its uh, Vision 2013 project 
that was a partial uh, investment towards renewables. But uh, also in the in the European Union, in the Green European Union, uh, in the negotiation to guarantee the recovery fund, big cut. Big cuts have been made to health and environmental research projects like Horizon Europe and EU Life. And the, the coordinator of uh, EU Life said that these budget cuts represent an unprecedented slash, slashing of European research and innovation with negative impact for decades to come. So to conclude, an epochal change is underway, uh, both in the objective situation and in mass consciousness. And we had this, uh, you can say, a coincidence. The climate crisis and the coronavirus crisis show the billions of people that this system is unable to solve any fundamental problem. Despite the scientific resources that there would be and could be rapidly developed, but of course only a rational and planned management. And if with the climate movement we have seen the uh, the youth entering into the field, thirteen minutes. With the coronavirus crisis, we have seen also the workers' strikes, but not only the strikes. It was important that workers began to discuss. Uh, what uh, was needed to be done since the bosses didn't? Which activities were essential to the society and which were not? And uh, discussing about the, the closures, the closure of non-essential activities, but also in some cases for the reconversion of factories, like the workers uh, of the General Electric in the U.S., who asked to produce ventilators to face the health crisis. And you can be sure that workers know exactly how they could convert production to make it safe both for health and for the environment. And therefore, we're seeing not only the barbarism of capitalism that is advancing, but also what is the only power in society that can solve this crisis. And that is the power of the organized working class. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Alessio, for uh, that uh, intervention. Uh, the next speaker is uh, Florian Keller from Austria, and then Jack will sum up the discussion. Uh, so uh, welcome, Florian. Yeah, hello. Uh, comrades, um, I want to speak uh, a little bit uh, about the Greens, which got propelled to new heights in Europe, especially in German, German-speaking part of it, uh, and not in the last last class uh, placed by youth voting for them as a party which speaks out consistently against climate change in the last decades. Yeah, but uh, as the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <clears throat> so I want to explain what the Greens uh, really represent uh, in, uh, in politics and bourgeois politics. Uh, they developed mainly as a byproduct of uh, the big movements at the end of the 70s and beginning of the 80s movements uh, against environmental uh, destruction, of course, but also against nuclear power, uh, armament, and the women's oppression. And borrowing from the militancy of these movements, they had an aura of 
petty bourgeois radicalism, so to say, um, surrounding them. Uh, yes, which led to many leftists and even so-called communists to join them. Uh, but we have to see they did not have any link to the organized workers' movement and little appeal to most workers. And so uh, there was only one uh, way forward to this, uh, for these parties, uh, and this is a slow integration as a normal bourgeois party in the political system. Uh, I could give, give many examples, but I want to focus on one because it's a little bit funny. Uh, in Germany, there's the region of Baden-Württemberg, which is the southwestern region of Germany with 11 million inhabitants. It's a big center of uh, industry, especially the car industry. For example, there's the um, headquarters of Daimler, which uh, is the company that produces Mercedes cars and others like Porsche uh, and Bosch um, companies. And since 2011, uh, when the Fukushima uh, accident happened, it has a green prime minister. Uh, his name is Winfried Kretschmann. He's an ex-Maoist, like quite a few green politicians in Germany. And we have to say he gets along very well with the big car manufacturers in this region, going even as far as kicking out the typical green symbolism out of the window by proudly driving a big Mercedes car. And, br and bragging with that. And when the emission scandals uh, Jack spoke about broke out, um, the, the emission scandal Jack spoke in his lead off about the um, emissions of diesel engines, he faithfully defended this car manufacturer against any critique by saying that people should buy more uh, diesel cars and not less. <laughs> so in reality, you see what... Uh, uh, that's only one example, but you can see what uh, stays uh, uh, from the green program if they go into power. Six minutes. And to put it bluntly and sharply, uh, green, uh, the green parties, uh, the green leaders are only another strand of bourgeois demagogy. 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 Sorry, my English is too bad. <laughs> And, uh, of course, another strength than Trump, Bolsonaro and the others with a nicer, softer, greener face. But they still do not have and uh, lie uh, offensively uh, uh, that they have no solutions to the problems which they are voted in to solve. Uh, but one has to notice uh, a little thing um, as Trump and Bolsonaro and the others are uh, scolded by the bourgeois and the bourgeois media which the Greens also were for a long time for being uh, uh, utopians and not looking after the economy and things like that. Now they are treated much nicer. Um, uh, and the reason for that is that on the one hand, like uh, other comrades explained, uh, the Greens can be used to channel the movement against climate change to save uh, water, so to say. But there is more to it. Uh, especially in German, you have to put it very, per, uh, very bluntly, uh, that German imperialism at the moment is trying to weaponize the issue of climate change in the struggle between the imperialist powers. And the Green Party is proposing itself as the best vehicle, so to say, with which to, to do that. Ten minutes. <clears throat> as many comrades in the discussions, uh, in the last two days, I've explained already the crisis of capitalism 
leads to a rising of protectionist tendencies all over the world. Mm. And German imperialism is far too small to compete on the world market alone against the giants of the US and China. Uh, so if they do not want to sink in the current crisis, Germany has to unite the diverging European Union to the inside, uh, bringing especially Italy and Spain into line, secure the home market, so to say, and, but also build a united economic bloc to the outside, uh, which can uh, fight in these trade wars all over the world with uh, protectionist measures of its own. Uh, and they systematically do that by going for a system of so-called carbon border taxes. I cannot go uh, into it for the lack of time, but in effect, uh, these carbon border taxes are nothing more than tariffs uh, for all the uh, goods coming from outside of Europe. Uh, the Greens pushed for that for some time, but uh, uh, the big uh, German capitalists uh, wrote it on their own program now, and uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the new German head of the European Commission, is working on that. 13 minutes. Before the lockdown, she made it the official policy of the European Commission, and now after short pause in the lockdown, this project is now reawakened again, with uh, Merkel and Macron finding an agreement on it. <clears throat> And we as Marxists have to expose these measures uh, very sharply as what they are. They are no tool whatsoever to change uh, the fact of climate change in capitalism, but only a tool uh, of one strand of imperialism to fight against the others. Even the Handelsblatt, one of the leading uh, newspapers in Germany for the big capitalists, was forced to say, and I quote, uh, they say the export refund, uh, they mean ex for exports to other countries, works against the climate protection objective of that measure. Sum up, please. Yes. Uh, however, the scrapping of the refund would mean a consider considerable competitive disadvantage for European companies. Uh, this is a dilemma for which no solution is in sight. Uh, well, we can agree with them, and it shows what the bourgeois has to offer if that's the uh, biggest uh, thing that they are pushing for in Europe. <laughs> and like I said before, as the way to hell is paved with good intentions, we have to tell the truth to all the youth who fight against climate uh, climate change. That, like uh, Comrade said before, there's only one solution, and this is um, a socialist planned economy. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Florian. Uh, so uh, before I hand it over to uh, Jack, I would like to thank everyone who participated and contributed to this uh, very interesting discussion. Uh, I recommend all comrades to read the recent IMT statement on climate change. You can find it on marxist.com by searching. Uh, and uh, as uh, comrades will know, it's not free to organize an event such as this. We had a fantastic collection yesterday. And uh, I uh, would uh, reiterate that uh, you can still donate at donate.marxist.com. And uh, materially support the building of uh, the international Marxist tendency. Uh, so I will now welcome uh, Jack to sum up the discussion. Yes, thanks comrades. I think it's been a really, really excellent discussion. 
there have been lots of really excellent points that have been made that I didn't have time to fit into my original lead off. Uh, and I will try and touch on some of them now. First of all, I think Jonas was absolutely right to talk about the uh, revolutionary energy building up amongst the youth. You can see this both with how radical the climate change, uh, the climate strikes have been, but also in terms of how radical the Black Lives Matter demonstrations have been. <clears throat> and this really is something that Marxists need to take account of. Uh, a few of the comrades talked about the attempt to co-opt or uh, divert the green uh, movement. And I think that this shows that without a revolutionary leadership, without a mass Marxist organization, these movements can be co-opted. What we need is a mass Marxist organization that can intervene in these movements and take the leadership away from the uh, liberals and the NGOs. And I think the comrades explained very well how these groups are our enemies. They are the enemies of socialism. And so they are the enemies of a green transition. Uh, Jonas, I think, was right to explain how um, <clears throat> we have to link our demands very closely to social questions. Uh, and that can be a very good way to combat the conservatism that we have seen amongst many of the trade union leaderships. In the UK, for example, uh, many of the leaders of the biggest trade unions have actually come into conflict with the green movement, talking about uh, you know, opposing job losses and things like this. <clears throat> But I think we have, as the comrades have explained, we have the perfect answer to this because a, a socialist transition with a democratically planned economy would mean no uh, job losses. But of course, that uh, outlook is beyond that of uh, some trade union leaders. Uh, Adam very well explained how, uh, you know, it's impossible to manage capitalism and make it nicer. You wonder how anyone who has seen the experience of Greece over the recent years can still think that we can manage capitalism or convince capitalists. Here you had Syriza, a so-called far left government, took power and did try to negotiate with the capitalists and their representatives. But this was just another demonstration as um, as to the fact that if uh, if you are not prepared to break with capitalism, then ultimately it is big business that decides. Uh, in free capitalist societies such as uh, Britain, you are free to uh, think and say as you please. But that's only so long as big business decides, because whenever attempts are made to reform the system, what you see are strikes of capital and capital flight. Ultimately, you have capitalists being able to blackmail governments to do what they ple uh, what they want. Um, Alessio, as well, I think, was right to point out that it's only a democratically planned economy that is capable of solving the climate question. Uh, we can take, just to um, illustrate this with a, an example, we could take the example of Cuba. Now, of course, this is it's uh, not a democracy, but it is still a planned economy. So despite uh, the deformities that I don't have time to go into, they have uh, made some quite significant advances in uh, the fight against climate change. And so they were the first country to meet the UN's targets for sustainability. So you compare this against uh, some mighty capitalist powers such as the United States uh, and Cuba has been able to make advances far in advance of the US. But it would be fairer, of course, to compare Cuba to a country in a similar region 
that is a similar size, such as Haiti. And so I think uh, what has been achieved in Cuba, if you were able to uh, carry that out democratically in a far more developed, larger uh, economy, you could have huge advances. <clears throat> Alessio also talked um, about the fact that in this war of markets, the environment is the least of capitalist concerns. And I think you do hear uh, sometimes uh, figures attempt to try and convince capitalists and their representatives um, about climate change in a kind of cost-benefit analysis, i.e. Uh, it will be far more expensive to deal with the impacts of climate change than to sort out the problem now. But there was one uh, professor who actually quit the IPCC. He uh, said that they were being too alarmist. And he wrote that the uh, total loss of global economic output due to climate change would um, would be um, an annual drop in GDP of between 0.2 and 2%. And he said that half a century of climate change is about as bad as losing one year of economic growth. And he compared this. He said that um, since the start of the uh, crisis of 2008, the income of the average Greek person had fallen by more than 20%. And so he concluded and he said, climate change is not then the biggest problem facing mankind. Now, this is obviously very cynical, but this is the kind of mentality that capitalism uh, breeds. Uh, I think Florian very well explained the role of the Green parties. Uh, I think, you know, one of the best demonstrations that you can give someone uh, as to the nature of Green parties is uh, what happened in Austria where they joined in a coalition with the anti-immigrant right wing. So you had a government that was formed uh, that had the aim of cuts to emissions alongside cuts to immigration. So I think, yeah, this uh, clearly demonstrates that green parties are not our allies. Uh, now I'm being, being told to sum up. Um, and what I, I want to say is that I think this has been a spectacular event so far with over 6,000 people registering to learn about Marxist ideas. And I would say that if you've agreed with the ideas that have been said today, yesterday or in the, the coming days, it's not the time to sit on the sidelines and just agree from the comfort of your living room. Rosa Luxemburg once said that there are two alternatives facing humanity. And I think that the increasing number of freak weather events that we've been see that we've seen over the recent period gives some indication as to the barbarism that we will face if capitalism is not overthrown. So if you want to avoid that barbarism uh, and ensure a, uh, a socialist society instead, then I'd say that the only thing that you can do is to join an organization that is building a revolutionary, a revolutionary leadership around the world. And that is the international Marxist tendency. Thank you. Uh Thank you so much, uh, Jack, and thank you to everyone again who has uh, contributed and participated in this discussion. I think it has been a fantastic and uh, interesting and educating discussion for everyone. And as uh, Jack said, I think uh, that uh, the key thing now, if you are not yet a member of the IMT, and is to think about what we have discussed here, to draw the necessary conclusions, what could be more important so go to marxist.com and sign up to join. Let's build the IMT. Tomorrow we will start with uh, three sessions on uh, Marxist uh, economics, on uh, spontaneity and on historical materialism.
historical materialism, last one. So I hope to see everyone there, and I hope that you have a great, uh, great uh, night. Thank you, everyone.